the teenage boy is always getting into trouble. With only a few months of his formal schooling, Thomas learned about the world by reading, and through his hobby, playing with dangerous chemicals. Age 19, he takes as a telegraph operator for Western Union, asking for the night shift so he can spend his time alone, tinkering with his personal experiments. One night in 1867, he's working with a lead-acid battery when disaster strikes. He spills sulfuric acid onto the floor and watches in horror as this highly corrosive liquid leaks through the floorboards and ruins his boss's desk. Unsurprisingly, the next day he's fired. It was an insalubre start to an incredible career. Tom went on to establish the first industrial research laboratory and the first movie studio and had more than a thousand patents to his name. But it has been said that his most famous invention was his own reputation. He was the first inventor to create a publicity department, sending out press releases to ensure his innovations were championed by the media. Today, no name is more associated with the history of innovation than Thomas Edison. He even inspired a genre of fiction about boy geniuses that we call Edisoniads. In 2021, the pandemic has shown us just how important scientific and technological innovation is to our health and prosperity. What role will innovation play in the future of the global economy? What forces stand against innovation? And how can they be overcome? And how can we prevent negative innovations that make the world a more dangerous and unstable place? In this episode of Founding Conversation, we meet economist and Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz to discuss the world in our time and the importance of continuing innovation. Professor Stiglitz is a professor at Columbia University and former chief economist of the World Bank and a former chairman of the U.S. President's Council of Economic Advisors. He spoke to Christoph Donne. My first question for you is, what do you think about innovation? There's a strong debate among economists. We have some economists who are pessimistic, some others are more optimistic regarding innovation. For example, we have Professor Gordon, who considers that the innovation is dead. We created already what has been able to create by the humankind. Alternatively, we have some economists who consider that innovation is going on and the human can ingenuity will go on and will create new products and new services. I think it's going on very lively. But first, let me try to explain what uh, Professor Gordon had in mind. What he observed was that if you ask, what were the innovations that made the most difference for our society's well-being, standards of living, very broadly understood, what he argued was electricity and indoor toilets. Uh, indoor toilets because uh, it had an effect on uh, sanitation and that had an effect on life expectancy. And electricity has made an enormous difference to our productivity, to our standards of living. But you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic now, 
and you ask the question, what would have happened if that pandemic had happened 50 years ago or even 20 years ago? And the answer is we would not have been able to detect the figure out what this virus was. We would not have been able to develop the test. We would not have been able to develop in record speaks the vaccine, the vaccines based on RNA, new technologies. So we have been protected by innovation. Our, our GDP would have plummeted far worse and far longer had we not had this innovation in biology. Let me give another example. The other major issue we are facing today is climate change. But I feel confident that we will be able to combat climate change. We will be able to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050 or close to it because of innovation. The cost of renewable energy has plummeted in the last 15 years in a way that nobody could have anticipated. So that old economy based on fossil fuel will be able to put that behind because of innovation. So these are examples of, of the real successes of innovation. And I look forward to uh, uh, more and more innovations in ways the very nature of innovation is we can't fully anticipate where it's going to show up and how it's going to help us in one way or another. Thank you very much for this uh, first uh, answer, which is uh, to me a very exciting and fascinating to envisage a brighter future uh, for the humankind, whatever we look at, uh, the pandemic or the climate change. And we will have the opportunity to come back on the climate change maybe later in our discussion. But let's to come back uh, regarding the pandemic. And um, I would like to know, according to you, is the COVID crisis changing something in the innovation dynamics at work since years? Is it accelerating the trend, slowing down the trend, changing the direction of the trend? What is your, your best guess regarding the consequence of the COVID and yeah, the pandemic crisis on innovation? I think it is uh, stimulating innovation. Uh, it's having some effect on the direction of innovation. But one of the big insights of the pandemic is how important science is. If, as I said before, if it hadn't been for science, where would we be today? And put this in the context of what had been happening in the United States. President Trump every year asked for budget cuts in our science budget of 30%. He was not only a climate denier, he was also a science denier. And we now realize how important science is to us. It is the reason that we have so much higher standard of living today than we had 200 and some years ago before the Industrial Revolution. But at the same time, the pandemic is affecting the direction of innovation. You know, robots don't come down with COVID-19. Robots don't have to be socially distanced. Uh, they don't have to wear masks. So that has provided 
a further impetus to robotization and to AI. There was an enormous impetus for these innovations before, but now it's even greater. And that has implications for our society because the robots and AI are particularly good at replacing routine work. And that disproportionately affects unskilled workers. And the worry is that one of the crises that we've been facing, which is the inequality crisis, which feeds into a political crisis, that crisis will get worse because this pandemic will be stimulating the kinds of innovation that help the more skilled but hurt the unskilled. And we're seeing that in what is called the K-shaped recovery in the United States and in many of the other advanced countries around the world. As soon as we pronounce innovation, we think about the destructive creation from Schumpeter, the famous economist creating the innovation theory or the economic theory based on innovation. Despite that, innovation is also something meaning higher economic growth, especially in real terms, in real GDP growth. However, we consider that we are in innovation wave, as you argue just a, a few minutes ago. Despite that, innovation doesn't create additional economic growth. Economic growth is subdued everywhere, especially in Europe, but also in the US, in the way. How do you explain, despite this strong innovation wave, a subdued economic growth compared to historical standards in the US? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and that was exactly the same question that was asked when the beginning of the computer era, where Robert Solo, uh, a great economist of the last century, still alive, still uh, very thoughtful, uh, he said, you see innovation everywhere except in the GDP statistics. Now, it turned out in that particular case that a few years later, it did start showing up in the GDP, that it took a long time for the innovation of computers to get translated more broadly into GDP growth. But it did eventually get translated. Some of the innovation that we are in today that will happen. It will show up. But some of the innovation today is of a different kind and so may not show up. It may show up in how well off people feel. For instance, social media uh, makes people feel more connected, but it also has some negative aspects. It makes them feel more anxious. Some people are worried that it lowers attention spans. It has led to all kinds of harms, uh, incitement, uh, the organization of the insurrection in the United States on January 6th with, through social media. Uh, it leads to incitement of hate crimes. So there's some negative aspects of innovation. You know, innovation is just something new. And it can either be something positive that's new or 
unfortunately, there can be some negative new things. And when it's negative, we have to have regulations, pass laws, as we adapt to it. There are innovations designed to circumvent regulations and to circumvent laws. And so there, there is a constant, you might say, battle going on to make sure that the innovations that we have actually serve the well-being of society. Here's a question for you. Do you know where artificial limbs, the insulin pump, thermal blankets, dust busters, scratch-resistant lenses, freeze-dried blood, photovoltaic cells, shock-absorbing sneaker soles, and the sensor inside your smartphone camera were created? These famous inventions were not developed in isolation. They were all created as part of NASA's Apollo program in the 1960s and 70s. Amazing technologies that were invented to take Americans into space quickly filtered down and are now part of the tapestry of everyday life. As NASA prepares to return to the moon, what new innovations will emerge to transform our world? I would like now to shift on the, on the second dimension. And let's maybe make our scope maybe a little bit broader and to look uh, in different uh, areas of uh, planet Earth, especially China. Because as soon as we pronounce innovation, once again, it's not possible to not discuss about China. The U.S. has probably the world technological leader since the Second World War. And we have now a challenger, which is China, not Europe. Europe is nowhere on this innovation map, according to me. I don't know what you think about it, by the way. But regarding China, for sure, China is a very serious challenger in terms of innovation capabilities, especially in artificial intelligence, for example, or even robots. How do you see China from this perspective? One of the big concerns right now is the fact that China has taken a shift towards more authoritarianism, a lot of concern about the violation of human rights against the Uyghurs particularly, a concern about democracy, uh, the suppression uh, of Hong Kong. And these are issues that are, are very central to the values of Europe and the United States. You know, at the end of the Cold War, there was a discussion by Francis Fukuyama that uh, it was the end of history. We were all moving towards liberal democracies and free market economies, and free trade would accelerate the process, and we all would share the same political and economic systems. Well, 30 years later, that seems a little bit of a Pollyannish fantasy. Uh, we're not going there anytime soon. And that raises really difficult issues because it means that the differences in economic systems imply in turn greater difficulty in getting common rules that work well and you might say fairly for the two different economic uh, systems. One of the areas that you mentioned, AI, illustrates the point. One of the, the big input into AI is data. And in Europe, you have a great respect for privacy. 
in China, there, there is no respect uh, for privacy. And that gives them a competitive advantage in data. But should we allow an economic system, a surveillance economy, to get an advantage over us? Uh, that's a, a very troubling question and uh, something that I think we have to think a lot about. But finally, let me say, the pandemic and climate change bring home the fact that we have to cooperate with China. These are global issues. And, uh, you know, pandemic is by its definition global. And climate change, used to be called global warming, is by definition global. And so we will have to work together. So to me, this is going to be the big challenge coming forward. That is, how do we devise international rules, international rule of law that will ensure that we can articulate forcefully our values, our concerns about democracy and, and human rights, and at the same time, uh, provide a framework for cooperating in the areas that are absolutely essential for us to cooperate. Do you consider that uh, innovation plays a key role explaining why inequalities are rising? Yes, it does. I mean, it's not the only one. There are many other forces, but it is a key role. And you see it in the growth of the wealth of the very top, Amazon, Google, Facebook, uh, the tech giants. It relates in a way to one of your earlier questions. While it's given rise to enormous fortunes, it has at the same time not led to very large increases in GDP. And so it hasn't had the impetus for GDP that one would have hoped. It also hasn't helped the government's tax base as much because they are excel in tax avoidance. Uh, the digital giants are really, one of their strengths is not only making wonderful telephones and wonderful innovations, but also uh, I talked before about negative innovations. One of the negative innovations is innovations in avoiding uh, your responsibility in paying taxes. And they figured out uh, how to do that uh, really, really well. They've also been extremely innovative in extending and increasing their market power and exploitation. And that is, of course, a real, real concern. And that's where it's a matter of rules and enforcement of the rules. Europe has done a better job than the United States. Uh, Margaret Vestager was very good and, and her successor continues to be good in going after uh, them. Interestingly, now in the United States, there are many antitrust actions uh, being undertaken against the digital giants. In her book, Mother of Invention, economist Katrine Marsal reveals that attitudes to gender have been a major barrier to innovation. Today, the wheeled suitcase is such an integral part of travel that it's easy to forget that it once needed to be imagined into being. Thanks to sexism, the idea of rolling a suitcase was once considered too silly to be commercially viable. 
it was assumed that men would carry luggage rather than be emasculated by the act of pulling a suitcase. And it was believed that no woman would ever travel without a man by her side to carry the luggage for her. It wasn't until the 1980s that social attitudes finally began to change. And today, men enjoy the benefits of suitcases with wheels without fear of losing their manliness. How many potential innovations have been lost thanks to sexism and discrimination? Uh, do you consider that cryptocurrencies are a part of this innovation wave or this innovation trend? And then cryptocurrencies, are they unavoidable in the future and could replace the sovereign money printed by states? I've constantly made reference to both good and bad innovation. <laughs> and uh, innovation circumventing regulations and innovation contributing to increases in standards of living. You know, I've been involved uh, in my role as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors and chief economist of the World Bank and a variety of other roles in trying to make the financial system more transparent and trying to make sure that everybody pays their fair share of taxes to circumscribe the extent of tax evasion and tax avoidance. And you ask the question, why do we need a cryptocurrency? What is crypto? It's secret. We have a good currency. The dollar has been very stable. You can do transactions. We've had a lot of innovation in uh, the medium of exchange. You can use platforms to engage in transactions very efficiently. In India, they've even made it uh, basically zero cost. So if it were not for market power monopoly, the cost of moving money from your bank account to my bank account is essentially zero. So we've had a lot of good innovation. But cryptocurrency is an innovation that is trying to undermine all the efforts that we've made over the last quarter century to make a transparent financial system that circumscribes illicit activity and tax avoidance innovation. Now, the reason it hasn't been shut down is that it remains small. But I believe that if it grows, the na national governments all over the world will respond and respond forcefully. Remember when Facebook just a couple of years ago talked about Facebook in introducing its own currency, the response in the United States and Europe was very strong. And that idea simply dropped away. They realized if they tried this, they would be regulated in ways that would undermine them. So I haven't heard anything about that Facebook currency for some time. So to me, I'm not that worried. There's one more dimension of the Bitcoin and other of these currencies. You know, we're all concerned about the climate change and energy use. Mining Bitcoins uses more energy than Argentina countries. And we talk about, you know, what is the enormous social cost of mining something 
that is of negative social value. So to me, uh, that's all the more reason that we will eventually will do something about these. My last question is about uh, climate change. You, you mentioned this key topic in the first part and in, in your first uh, answer, and I would like to come back on, uh, on climate change. How do you consider that innovation could play a key role uh, to address the climate change issue? You said that innovation could be a solution uh, to address uh, this, this issue, but how to do it? Should we change something in the monetary policy? Should we change something in the fiscal and the budget, in the tax and in the budget policies in order to promote uh, innovation to address climate change? What should we do? I think climate change is an existential issue for all of us. And we have to use absolutely every tool at our disposal. And that means fiscal and monetary. Christine Lagarde has been quite strong of trying to encourage the European Central Bank to take stronger measures, uh, making sure that uh, in its portfolio it doesn't include dirty assets. Uh, central banks all over the world are worried about stranded assets and climate risk. Governments, regulatory bodies, central banks are moving very quickly to require disclosure of carbon risk. I think all these things are important parts of moving away from fossil fuel assets. What we have to uh, remember is that we've already discovered more fossil fuels than we can possibly use if we intend to be roughly carbon neutral by 2050 or even 2060. So there's going to be a lot of stranded assets. What does that mean? A lot of assets that today have a positive price are in the next 30 years going to go down to a close to zero price. And we all saw in 2008 what happens when we repriced mortgage assets. We had a financial crisis. Now, if that readjustment of prices of carbon assets goes smoothly, we might be able to avoid a crisis. But we also know that markets sometimes make adjustments, not smoothly, but all of a sudden. You know, all of a sudden people wake up and say, boy, do we have a lot of stranded assets? And then prices start to collapse and then everybody starts to wake up. And if that happens, given the interlinkages across our financial systems and across our economy more broadly, that would be a systemic crisis of an order of magnitude greater than the 2008 crisis. So I think it's a good thing that regulatory bodies, financial regulators, central banks are beginning to look at this systemic carbon risk. And as they do that, that will be an important instrument, uh, impetus for financial institutions, non-financial enterprises to move away from fossil fuel. And that will be important as an accompaniment to the investments that fiscal authorities have to make and the incentives that governments have to provide both through pricing carbon 
and through regulations. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Stiglitz, for this is a very fascinating and uh, exciting discussion with you. This week's guests on Founding Conversation were Professor Joseph Stiglitz and Christoph Dani. This series is brought to you by the Bicta Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, and Vasily Cristodulu. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.